Well, thank you, Jerry. It is so good to serve Jerry as a new elder at Grace Bible. In our text this morning that Jerry read for us, we move to the climactic chapter here in chapter 12, as we'll finish that chapter, this chapter next week, in which this section has been called the book of signs. Chapters 1 through 12 and the last half of John 13 on has been called by many the book of suffering. It's in chapter 12 that Jesus, as we're made aware as readers, that Jesus is intimately aware of the road before him. We see everything building, building and building. And, and we're reminded in John chapter 3, verse 8, what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He tells him and he compares the spirit to the wind, that the wind blows where it will go, wherever he will go. And, and, and so the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know when it, where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Things are building in which the Pharisees are realizing that there is such a multitude of people that are coming to belief in Jesus or claiming that he is the Christ, that things are getting out of their control. Things are moving so much out of their control that they will express a regret in our text this morning, a regret that they did not kill Jesus earlier. So this morning, my prayer for us as we look at this text is that, first and foremost, that God would work in our hearts, in our heads, and through our hands a greater love of the Lord, that as we see his full awareness of the road that was before him that now is in chapter 12 is pivoting from the signs that he's done in the outward ministry to the ministry of suffering that will take place. That we as believers would be that much more comforted. That we would be that much more at peace to rest in the arms of the good shepherd. That we would be moved to peace and we would proclaim the goodness of Christ. To not carry a heavy burden but to believe upon Jesus and have life. That's the good news we have before us. So church family, let's look first in verses 12 through 22 as we note that a wind of apparent belief in Jesus as the Christ is spreading out of the Pharisees' control. I say apparent belief because the crowd is fickle. The crowd is everything, if not fickle, like a toddler just moving from one heightened emotion. Toddlers are great, aren't they? Unbelievably joyful creatures, and then immediately unbelievably wrathful, angry creatures. It's amazing how quickly they can pivot. Children are a blessing of the Lord. Want to qualify that? Get them while you can. Wonderful arrows, the hands of the Lord, all that. Yes, absolutely. Toddlers are great. But what we see with the crowds is that they behave with this mob-type mentality. But they're right at the very beginning here. They move in such a way of belief that Jesus really is the Christ. They've seen the Lord work. They've seen Jesus work and do undeniable things. He's given blind men who've been born, born blind, he's given them sight. He's healed the lame. He's done things that no one can do. He has spoken words that have stumped the Pharisees at every single end. They're dumbfounded and they come to this conclusion that he really is the Christ. Belief in Jesus is spreading like wildfire among the Jewish people. So 12 through 19, how do the people respond? Not only do they quote from Psalm 118 of Hosanna, salvation. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But they give this chanting and they see as Jesus comes into the city, it's Reminiscent, they're clearly recognizing Jesus who rides in on a donkey as the Messiah. 
as the promised one of God. And I'll read the text for us, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. Of course, this sounds familiar. Your your footnotes likely reference this, cross-reference this verse. But God's Word, written hundreds of years earlier, before this scene, prophesied of the Christ. And it said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free and from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your uh, sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. It's victory that they associate the Christ. It's victory against the Romans who are ruling over them. It's victory that has finally happening. And so they take palm branches. Now, on Palm Sunday, as a boy growing up, was the most confusing because there's not palm branches in Missouri. I don't know if you know that or not. That's not a thing. And I don't think anybody ever explained it or I never cared to find out, but I never understood the significance of palm branches. Well, they understood the significance of palm branches. It wasn't just a Jewish thing. It was a Roman thing. Palm branches symbolized victory. It was victory. Now, in their intertestamental time, so when we close the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, in our arrangement, and we open up in Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. That's 400 years of God not breathing out Scripture. There's history that takes place, but it's not authoritative final word of God, Scripture. But in that time, the Jews have had several times of restoring the temple. They've had several battles and victories that have taken place. And in those times, they celebrated with palm branches. It was victory that they had had. The Romans did the same. Actually, the scripture is actually rather consistent in Revelation chapter 7, the scene of this great multitudes of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Do you know what they're holding in their hands? In one hand, they're holding a palm branch, celebrating that they have victory in the Lamb. Victory. So the multitudes look out had Jesus who comes into Jerusalem and they claim victory because here is the promised king. The one who has all authority, who will reign forever from sea to sea. He's here. The Romans did this as well. As a matter of fact, when I was in seminary, we had to buy source books in my New Testament backgrounds class, which was awesome. Expensive, but awesome. So I got these pictures. Well, uh, the internet has come a long way even since then. And so if you go to a website, there's lots of different websites. So there's a ton of different websites you can go to that have these pictures of coins. Just like in our culture, monuments are controversial. Coinage is controversial. Every culture, civilization that has its own monetary system takes and celebrates certain events, certain people, certain places. And Rome was no exception, and neither were the Jewish people in Judea. This is what they would do. So one image of this, for example, as it comes up on the screen, Right there. Very good. That came out in 2000, I think. 
Uh, that's not true. That's not true at all. Uh, that's from, this is from AD 70. So the emperor Vespasian in Rome, what he would do, because for the Roman people, the palm branch also represented victory. So if you, uh, this is the Jewish picture. I didn't send you the Roman picture. Okay, that's all right. Anyway, this is a Jewish picture that's printed around like 130 when the Jews would revolt and have victory. They immediately printed off coinage with palm branches celebrating victorious battles. So they would mint these coins and those coins that would travel around would be a reminder that their God is the victor. Well, in AD 70, a coin I did not put up for you, but if you're really nerding out right now, ancientcoinage.org has got all the sweet coinage action you'd ever want to look at. Uh, and if not, now you know. Now you know where not to go. But anyway, if you go to that website, you'll see a ton of Roman coins. And in one of those in AD 70, uh, Emperor Vespasian uh, printed off and had minted these coins when he put down the Jewish revolt. When they came and they conquered the temple in AD 70, a key historical event. And in that time, on that coin, is the emperor's face on one side of the coin, and on the other side of the coin is a Jewish man crouched on the floor in defeat. And behind him is a palm tree, and on the other side of the palm tree is a Roman centurion. And so imagine as a Jew seeing that coin, the history it would bring back, the power it would bring back. And why do I say that? Because the palm branch was a declaration of victory. The palm branch, as the Jewish people look at Jesus coming into Jerusalem, it was a declaration. It was a sermon. Here is the Christ. It's been 400 years since Malachi wrote the last prophet that God gave us. John the Baptist was a prophet that told us about him. Here he is. He's the Christ. He's the victor. Trust in him. That's what they proclaim. And the Jewish leaders look at the scene that's unfolding. And they express a statement of regret. Did you see that? Verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. The Jewish leaders who opposed Jesus realized that things are out of, his, out of their control. What are we going to do? If I ask you the question, do you have regrets in your life? Now, Sometimes we initially respond, no. But of course, we all regret sin, so we'd say sin, yes. But the Jewish leaders are so grieved, they're so darkened in their understanding that their regret is that they didn't kill Jesus earlier. That's their regret. Because things are sliding out of their hands of control. Not only are Jews coming to belief, but Greeks are coming to belief. Gentiles are coming to believe in Christ. Look at verse 20 and 22. Multitudes of Greeks, not Greeks, might be some Greeks, I don't know. Multitudes of Greeks are expressing curiosity in Jesus as the Christ. So they look and say the whole world is coming, not just Jews from Jerusalem and all over who are gathering for Passover, but even these Greeks are coming and seeking out Jesus. It's all out of our control. We waited too long. We should have taken his life earlier as though they didn't try, Right? The hour had not yet come. So a number of Greeks, these are what, what the book of Acts calls God-fearing Greeks. These are Greeks. So they're not Hellenistic Jews. They're not Jews who were spread out that spoke Greek and believed in the Lord. These are Greeks that come to believe in Yahweh. 
And they gather and they observe the Jewish customs. So they're gathering for Passover and they want to see Jesus. And they go to the disciple with a, Jew, with a Roman name, Philip. They go to Philip and say, Philip, we want to sit with Jesus. Now Jesus is unbelievably busy. Now remember, disciples helped to facilitate the ministry of the one they were following, the teacher. So they would regularly run errands for him and do whatever assisted his ministry, make arrangements for him as he came to a new place. And so they come to Philip and ask Philip, can we come and sit down with him? Can we just sit with Jesus, meet with Jesus? We need to talk to him. And Philip has matured. He's learned. So Philip, he goes, not to Jesus yet, he goes to Andrew. He goes to Andrew. And what a lesson that we can have in our life right here from we see from Philip and Andrew. For these men are maturing. These disciples are maturing in the Lord. Because back in John chapter 4, do you remember what happened? Jesus was incredibly busy. He was tired. He was hungry. They were all tired. The text specifically mentions Jesus being weary. And they want to go around the Samaritan village. And Jesus goes into it. And not only does the Samaritan woman come to believe in Christ, but multitudes from the town end up coming to believe in Christ. The disciples are put in their place. And so now another request from Greeks takes place to want to meet with Jesus. So they decide, yeah, Jesus is busy. We, could prob- we should probably tell him no. But let's go ahead and just let Jesus decide. So lesson one we should apply to our life right here in this scene is that we should be like Philip, and when we get in decision points, we should go to another follower of Jesus. We should go to another believer and involve them in the decision. Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip talk about it and realize, you know what? Let's just take it to Jesus and let him decide. So they take the message on to Jesus. And we'll see his answer in just a moment because it's absolutely astounding. But what a lesson for us in our lives. How differently will our lives look this week and next week and next month as we as believers commit, Lord, very simply to these two things. For the decisions before me, would would you give me the courage to involve other believers in them? And secondly, if others come to me or I come to another, would I go to Jesus with it? Go to Jesus. He is never too busy to hear our requests. Now, the, the answer that he gives to the Greeks is probably not what they wanted to hear, but he's not too busy to give a response. How different would our culture look? if it practiced those two components, to involve a God-fearer in the decision and then to go to Jesus. And if Jesus adjusts our desires or our goals, we would be at peace because we went to our teacher who is greater than the students. That's good news for us, church family. So we see the wind of apparent belief in Jesus as the Christ is spreading out of the Pharisees' control. And it becomes clear, secondly, that the costly road before Jesus is immeasurably great. As we shift to verses 20 through, 23 through 36, the costly road before Jesus, it's immeasurably great. But his union with the Father and love of the Father is greater. Jesus sees the beginning as the road shifts and he comes into Jerusalem and it leads to the cross. As we hit to John chapter 13, everything moves in that direction. Our text next week makes this so vividly clear for us. It's an unbelievable passage. Unbelievable.
The road before Jesus is so immeasurably great. Here's what he's aware of. Verse 23 through 30. Jesus knows and he willingly walks the road toward his atoning death. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows this ends in one route. And he gives him this answer in verse 23 through 30. Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine that you are Philip and the person sitting beside you is Andrew. And if there's nobody beside you, just imagine that somebody behind you is with you. So you go to Jesus. You've got the courage. You made the decision. Okay, uh, the Greeks came to me. I didn't know what to do. I went to Andrew. Andrew's like, okay, let's take it on to Jesus. I know he's really busy. He's really, really busy right now. But let's just take it to Jesus and see what he says. So you go to Jesus and you ask Jesus one question. Jesus, the Greeks would love to sit down with you and meet with you. And here's what Jesus tells you. Here's his answer. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now if, is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So, if you're Philip and Andrew, what do you go back and tell the Greeks? Right? Uh, you'd be like, so, is that a yeah, maybe? Should I tell them yes, no? Well, as we look at Jesus' response, we see that it's a no. It's a no. I'm sorry, Greeks. It is not the hour for me to sit down with you. I can't recline at the table again like I did with Lazarus last night. It's not the time for that. The hour has come, not for me to sit down with the Greeks, but the hour has come for me to lay my life down. He does not have time to meet with the Greeks because it's time to purchase salvation for the Greeks. That's what Jesus is doing. When he says the hour, it doesn't mean like one in 24 hours of the day. It's the hours as though to say the time or season, like it's the, it's the Christmas season. That's the time it is. And Jesus gives the answer. He knows exactly what's before him, and he is undeterred for the very purpose. Sure, it would be a good thing, that he would go and sit down with the Greeks, but it is not the hour. Why? Because it's not what the Father had given him to do. The Father didn't give him the call to come to the Greeks. He gave it to come to the Jews and bring salvation, and yet they would not have him, and it would lead to this road of crucifixion. And look at the response that he gives them. Not only is it not the hour, but the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified. In the Gospel of John, John uses this term glorified. Glory. Glory is this term that means weighty. That's why when I say glory, my hands weirdly do this every time. I can't help it. It means weighty. Here, you should try this with me, okay? You'll remember this forever. Glory has the idea of weighty. Weighty. It's heavy. It's weightiness. Because the glory of God is the fullness of His presence. 
The glory of God is the fullness of his attributes and his character. Weighty. As we, we're going to look at next week, fearful for Isaiah to be in the presence of the glory of God. I should not be here. I'm a man of unclean lips. Let me out of here. That's the response of glory. And Jesus affirms for them that he is the promised son of man. That Daniel 7 text we've looked at. He is the promised son of man. And the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. What John does with the word glorified is he puts it into several different words. He packs into it Jesus' suffering. He packs into it Jesus' burial. Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus' ascension and reign. And one day he's coming again. It's all part of his glory. Other gospel authors and other writers of Scripture parse those out to only be the time of glory. So we as believers, we will enter glory. You as a believer will enter glory one day. Glorified, resurrected physical body. No more tears from our eyes. No more decay. No more sickness. No more hatred. But abiding with Jesus, our Savior, our King forever. He will reign perfectly. No corruptions. That's glory. Cast off this body of death and corruption and destruction. That's glory. And Jesus tells them that he will be lifted up. The time is coming closer. And look at the description that he gives in their answer. Look at verse 24, 25, and 26. He doesn't classify as the world. The Jews classified, we've talked about this. And you knew this before you ever called me as your pastor. Jews and Gentiles, there were two classes of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, which is everybody else. And here we have Greeks, the Gentile of Gentiles. And Jesus doesn't respond to those that believe in him. He says his, he will be, he's this agricultural metaphor, he'll be like a seed that gets buried. And, it, and the seed will die. And it will produce forth what? Look at the three descriptions he gives. Because Christian... If you could make your own ID, if you could make your own coin, here's what would be on it. Here's your description. Verse 24, but if it dies, it, it bears much fruit. The fruit will be the, the God-fearing Greeks who come to believe in Jesus. The fruit will be the, the Jews who come to believe in Jesus. The people of every tribe, nation, tongue that come to believe in Jesus will be the fruit of Christ's atoning death and burial and resurrection. So you, Christian, are fruit. That's a primary description. Verse 25, you're a loser of your life. I had to add the last part on there. I just want to leave the first part because it felt cathartic or something. I don't know. We're losers of our lives. Look what he says, verse 25. Whoever loses his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he gives a third description, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So the third description in verse 26 is that we are servants who follow. We are fruit. We are losers of our lives. And we are servants who follow. That is who we are. That's who we are. And as we see the picture in Revelation 7, we hold in our hands a palm branch. And the Jews, though they were fickle in their belief at his coming and they misunderstood 
the fact that he was going to die to fulfill all those things. They were right to lay down branches, even though they didn't know the full extent of who Jesus was. And believers, that's who we are. We are fruit who are losers of our lives. Servants who follow, who hold up joyfully palm branches. What do you think the Greeks who read this thought later on when they read it? They would have been much older. John came out many decades after Christ's death. He wrote this account. So perhaps at this point, some of these Greeks were in their 70s, maybe? 80s? And imagine they're hearing the Gospel of John read in their local congregation. And they're remembering that scene when they felt disappointed because they wanted to meet with Jesus, but they didn't get to physically meet with Jesus. They'd never actually sat down physically and met with Jesus, for he was crucified and resurrected. And maybe they didn't see him when he ascended, even though he appeared to multitudes or when he resurrected. And then you read this body, you remember, I was so sad that day when I was younger, my 20s. I wanted to see Jesus, and we didn't get to see him. But he didn't meet with us because he was on the road. And he made us fruit. Fruit that will be with the seed for eternity. We didn't get to sit down and eat with him like we wanted to, but we will eat and drink with him forever. Oh, the emotions in your life. Believer, what a reminder that the things in our lives that appear to be disappointments right away as believers, we hold on to the promises of Scripture that all these things work together for good. To those that love him in Christ Jesus, he shapes us into the image of Christ through multitudes of disappointments and victories. That's good news. That's good news. Secondly, Jesus will, what is on this road? Jesus will step on the head of the serpent. Jesus will step on the head of the serpent. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This road will entail for him to step on the head of the serpent. Remember in Genesis 3.15, the serpent who came into the garden and Adam and Eve chose to listen to the serpent rather than the Lord. And in this, they reflected and they mimicked the serpent. Deceitful words. But the fate was promised in Genesis 3.15 of what would take place to the serpent. The Lord would tell him exactly what would take place. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, Jesus would be crucified high and lifted up. Yet he would crush the head of the serpent. The great serpent who has been defeated. What does he do? What is his mission? Revelation 12 gives us an insight that's been playing out for all eternity. We'll climax in the future. But verse 17 of Revelation chapter 12 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Believer, you better understand, we better understand that Satan hates you. His fate is sealed. It was sealed at the cross. Jesus struck the head of the serpent. But oh, how he hates you. Oh, how he hates you. So what should we do, believers? Well, John tells us actually in 1 John chapter 4, he warns of many antichrists. 
small a antichrist, the spirit of the age, the antichrist against Christ, whether it's in the form of government oppression against believers or the spirit of the age as it's described. He warns them of antichrist. And in 1 John 4, 4, he gives them the encouragement though, the reminder that greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. That's the comfort to the believer. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. Yes, the serpent whose fate is sealed, whose head was struck at the cross. Yes, his fate is sealed. And yes, he makes war against us. But believer, what do we do? We rest in Christ. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That's the good news. So what should you do to prepare for battle? You should rest in Christ. What should you do for battle? You should draw close to your shepherd. John 15 is going to make this so clear. To abide in the vine, to abide in him. To rest in the finished work of Jesus. So as we look at the road that Jesus walked, the application isn't believer. You and me need to gird up and walk that road. No, no, no. It's to rest in the road that Jesus walked. We abide and rest in Jesus and we rest in him. We're reminded what, what John wrote in his epistle. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Stop trying to fight on your own and rest in the finished work of Christ. Minister in love out of the finished work of Christ. Abide in Him. That's the good news we have, believers. Thirdly, Jesus will lovingly face the doubting masses every step of the way. Every step of the way. He tells them this in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is John 3.14. He told us earlier in his conversation with Nicodemus, He said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus says it again, that He will be lifted up. What is the point of Jesus saying He will be lifted up? Jesus is saying, not only do I know the suffering before me, I know how I'm going to die. My body is going to be crucified and lifted up and humiliating suffering. And the crowd totally understands what he's saying. We don't know if Nicodemus understood it in John 3, but we know that this crowd that has just held palm branches may still have palm branches in their hands, that he's the king, he's the promised one of Zion. Jesus just tells them, the Son of Man will be high and lifted up. And how do they respond? Do they invite Jesus to crowd surf on them? Do they give him a standing ovation? No. What do they do? It's as though they put down their palm branches totally, kick him to the side, and and begin doubting him. Right away at Jesus' journey that's shifting to the cross, he is met with doubt by the very crowd, or a portion at least of the very crowd, that just chanted Hosanna at his coming. And in the response to him, Look what they say. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They just declared who the Son of Man was a few minutes earlier. And immediately they turned on him. And Jesus, just like with the Greeks, doesn't say, No, I'm not going to meet with you. Jesus, at their two questions, doesn't say, let me give you a yes or no answer. Look how he responds. This is incredible. This is stunning. 
He responds to them. Verse 35, the light is among you for a little while. So even their doubt, did it change what Jesus knew the Father had set before him to do? It didn't change it an ounce. It didn't change it one step. He's doubted by the screaming masses who are cheering for him as, this is the Christ! What boldness that took on their behalf. Immediately they turn on him and doubt him. And what does he say? The light is among you for a little while longer. He knows he's still going to die. Their doubt doesn't change that. And he tells them this, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Sounds like 1 John 4, 4, doesn't it? The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And while you have the light, do what? Believe in the light. Why? That you may be sons of light. The command that he gives to the doubter is believe. He didn't sit down and engage them in furious debate to bring them back onto the, to the bandwagon. He commands them because he is the Christ. Believe. Believe. And believing you may have life. And in believing you may be freed from darkness and muteness. And you may shine forth like light because you reflect the Son in whom you worship. That's the good news, church family. That our Savior did what He did knowingly in full obedience to the Father. And we get to rest in Him as the fruit of His work, faithfully proclaiming the good news that's available to all people in Christ. Come to Christ and live. Come to Christ and live. Believe. Next steps. Next steps. Believe in Jesus. That's it. If the, if the focus of this passage in the next steps is to believe in Jesus, what should our focus be in our next steps? Believe in Jesus. If you have questions, ask questions to us, right? Ask questions. We would love to sit down with you. We'd love to respond with you and engage with you. But the command of authority that the king gives to the servants is believe. Parent to the child is believe, trust. This is the reminder that we gather together every Sunday. We're reminded that he is the snake crusher, the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the door, the resurrection, the true vine, the way, the truth, and the life, who willingly walked the costly road to purchase our redemption. Believe. This is what we say you know, basically every Sunday in our congregational prayer. But not simply believe, not only do believers not have to walk the road that Christ walked for us on our behalf in obedience to the Father, but you and I are invited to a table. So not only do we not have to walk a road of suffering, we are invited to a table, a feast prepared for us by our Savior for His children to partake of, a family meal that He partakes with us. We proclaim this until he comes the lord's supper together so if you came in this morning and you didn't uh if you weren't able to grab one of these elements if you're a confessing believer in the lord jesus christ and you're a good standing with the body of christ then uh put your hand up if you did not get one of these and we'll make sure that that we uh get one to you now as these are distributed to you this is unusual so we've never taken the lord's supper except for the last week or two, or last month or two when we've done this, and heard this lunchable sound at the opening of this. 
Now, I'm going to give you some orientation to this. When we get this, there's a little film on the, on the very top part. When you get it, you can go and open that little film up. It's kind of tricky. There's a little film and then a, a bigger one. You can hold that bread in your hand. And we say, this is different. We haven't done it like this before. And it's true. And a matter of fact, believers in Jesus Christ, though who have repented of sin and place your faith and trust in Christ, and we have, we've got some more over here that need some. Believers in Jesus Christ who have turned from sin and placed their faith and trust in Christ, we're invited. We have this, this ordinance, this gift, just as the Lord given the ordinance of baptism, proclamation of the Lord's and union with the Lord and his life, death, resurrection, public declaration. And in that is symbolizing not only a to walk consistent with what we confess in Jesus and our belief in his life, death, resurrection, and our hope. But we have in this also a proclamation that one day, just as Jesus bodily rose from the grave, we will bodily raise from the grave. And we will be with him forever. And in the Lord's Supper, there's believers that are gathering today all around the world. And over the last 2,000 years in all kinds of different contexts, now with COVID, obviously, we partake a little differently than we used to. But we're reminded even in this uniqueness that the Lord is honored. As we remember the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood for us, the bride of Christ, those who have confided in and trusted Christ. And if you don't know Christ, as you observe, we would ask you to come to believe in Christ. And next month when we partake, partake with us. Come to faith, declare him publicly, come to the table. For we're reminded that right now in Indonesia, North Korea, and countries and places all over the world, there are believers who have to do this in secret, gathering for fear of their lives. And so we're reminded as we look around, look around for a moment. And so it's like a family dinner. We get to look around and say, you know what? My sins are forgiven. I've been washed clean in Christ. He's my Savior and Lord, and He's your Savior and Lord. And we're family. We're one now in Christ. It's only Christ as the foundation that can bring true unity. That's the goodness of Christ. He has washed away our sin on the cross. That's the road that was before him that he willingly walked in obedience to the Father. And the Lord gives to the church this gift that Paul speaks of as we take the bread. In verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You open up that uniquely sounding container. You can't read the Old Testament. You can't read the law, the first five books, without a realization of how bloody sin is and how costly sin is. From the beginning in Genesis 3, where the Lord sacrifices an animal to clothe Adam and Eve, the shedding of the innocent life. The Abram scene on the mountain where the scapegoat is the scapegoat is delivered by the high priest every year. The Abram and Isaac scene where the Lord provides a ram that gets caught in the thicket. Well, the lamb that the Lord would provide, Jesus would willingly walk 
He would willingly take a crown of thorns and he would willingly suffer and die for us in full obedience to the Father, purchasing our salvation to all who believe, to Jew and to Greek. We partake as one family, reconciled together and preaching this message of reconciliation to the world, to come and believe in Christ and have life. And so continuing on, Paul continues on and says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray before we respond in song. Oh God, you are good. You are so good. Father, we thank you for sending the Son. We thank you for your love. That you would love us while we were yet powerless, while we were yet enemies. We thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Son, that you would take on the fullness of a man born of a virgin. Jesus living a sinless life doing all the works perfectly that the Father prepared in advance for you to do in the face of doubt, in the face of mocking, in the spiritual warfare that you undertook every day. Sinless as a blameless lamb, you would lay your life down. That you would both send the Spirit, He who has brought us to life, He in whom we rest, in your hand, in your way, he who convicts us of sin, that we confess to you, he who leads us in our life, he who brings others to salvation, who comforts our grieving. We aim to walk and to rest in the life that you give us. Give us joy as we proclaim you. Strengthen and build your church always. We give you glory and we look forward to the day when we will eat and drink with you, Lord. Jesus bodily. And all God's people said together, Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?